And I'm like, if I can fool you this way, why on earth would I go summon demons to do it? And they're like, I don't know, but you did. Hey, hey, Brian Miller here, and welcome back to One New Person, the show where we take a closer look at chance encounters to remind ourselves that every interaction is meaningful and every person we meet is important. We've had an incredible season full of generous, insightful guests, and we're going out with a bang. My esteemed guest today is Matt Dillahunty, who has the rare distinction of being a public intellectual. That's right, he makes a living producing and debating ideas. Matt has shared the stage and gone toe-to-toe with many of today's intellectual heavyweights, including Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, the list goes on. He is also the co-host of The Atheist Experience, a popular Texas-based webcast. But don't worry, Matt isn't here to chat about or defend atheism. That wasn't my interest or his. Instead, our conversation centered on truth in the information age. In particular, under which circumstances should we be convinced that something is true? Plus, Matt gives us practical tips for having healthy debates where everyone walks away friends, a wild chance encounter when he was only 12 years old, and an intimate look at his unlikely path to international thought leader. If you'd like to watch instead of listen to this conversation, there's a video version available on YouTube, which includes bonus segments and additional stories that have been cut from the audio version. You'll find that link in the show notes on onenewperson.com. So put your thinking cap on and please enjoy this season finale of One New Person with the exceptional Matt Dillahunty. Cool. Well, listen, I, uh, you know, Matt, I, I can't, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to uh, be here for me uh, for a little bit today. So thanks so much. You're welcome. So these days, let me just start with this. If you're at a cocktail party, a social gathering, you're out in the world and someone asks you, what do you do? How do you answer? <laughs> I love this because it happens every time and I still haven't come up with a good answer. It's, I, I know that they can tell immediately that this is going to be difficult because there's kind of like an eye rolling and a sigh and it's, I do lectures, debates, and magic shows. I, lectures, debates, and magic shows. That's a great. That's 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 a great answer. What do people get most excited about when you say lectures, debates, and magic shows? Magic. Yeah. Right. Every time. Every time, and it's it's why I'm I'm happy that I do a lot of different things. The other thing is, you know, while I host the Atheist Experience show and I do a lot of debates on religion and philosophy stuff. Um, I'm not, I don't go door to door, you know, I'm not trying to shove things in people's face. I want to have the conversations with people who want to have the conversations. And so if I say lectures, debates, and magic shows, normally the, the first response is that's interesting because that's what people say when they're trying to process what it is that you said. And then they'll say magic shows like what, or a few times somebody said, well, on what subjects do you lecture on? And then I get to say, you know, Hey, I'm skepticism, humanism, atheism, philosophy, religion, whatever. And I get to watch their reaction. And now, because I do so many different things, we can have a conversation about whatever interests both of us rather than it just being, you know, hey, what do you do for a living? Well, I sell propane and propane accessories. Let me tell you all about them. And then their eyes glaze over. I have to tell you, so many folks that I know now, you know, I, so I, you know, I, I spent almost 10 years as a full-time magician and then transitioned into speaking, which is now what I do, you know, speaking in workshops, blah, 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 and author and all that. 
I, I was just chatting with one of my uh, colleagues the other day saying, when I was a full-time magician, it was so much easier to answer that question because people said, what do you do? And I just went magician. And they go, oh, and they have a million questions, right? Even if they got the wrong idea, they have a conversation right away. But when you go, I'm a speaker, people, oh, what do you mean? What do you speak about? So uh, in all those places that you just described, where do you feel most at home? Um, I, I probably feel, well... I think I'm pretty much just as at home with all of them now. There was a period of time where uh, I was terrified of public speaking. It's one of the reasons why I didn't become a preacher when I was a you know Southern Baptist teenager and all the people thought I was going to. I was terrified of public speaking. Um, I got over that, and it's I don't really think it's as big of an issue as a lot of people make it. It turns out if you're just honest in yourself and you're willing to say, I don't know when you don't know, and you're not trying to pretend things you don't know, all of a sudden public speaking is a piece of cake, or at least that's the change that happened in me. And so there was a period of time where I was completely comfortable on stage or at a convention, as long as I was giving a talk or answering questions and things like that. But I would still get nervous before magic shows. And then I realized <laughs> why I was getting nervous before those shows. And it only happened when I was introducing an effect for the first time, or if I, in the back of my head was like, you haven't rehearsed this enough. You haven't planned for what happens if something goes wrong. And so that little anxiety sits in there. And it turns out as soon as I actually started, you know, making sure that I prepped and was comfortable with stuff, nothing got introduced into the show until I was, you know, confident in it. Um, that went away too. And now I just, I love it, which is, you know, I, I don't really get into the introvert extrovert distinction that a lot of people do because I think humans are for, far more complicated than that. If I took a test, I know I would show up as an introvert and that, that kind of makes people curious. Well, hang on a minute. You do a live TV show and you talk and you're on stage and all this. How could you possibly be an introvert? It's because you don't see the downtime that I spend by myself doing, you know, mindless things uh, just to recover from the time that I spend doing the others. I'm thrilled that you brought up that difference between introvert, extrovert, because I think it's really misunderstood and it's causing a lot of problems that don't need to be caused. I think people get that, um, they confuse introversion with shyness and they're not the same thing. Um, some introverts are shy and that's kind of tragic. Uh, but more often than not, I feel most of the introverts I know, they're not shy. They just gain energy from alone time and drain when they're in public versus extroverts gain energy from being in public and drain when they're alone. I, I'm an extrovert. Uh, well, I've taken those tests. I've taken Susan Cain's test on her or whatever. And it comes up with ambivert. And I feel like most people would come up with ambivert, right? Uh, We're all I, I on a sliding so. scale. Actually, you know who said that? Um, the, uh, the very person who connected us, Michael Kent, uh, on the first season of this show, he and I had this wonderful long form conversation. And he mentioned that we're all kind of on a sliding scale. Do you feel like you get really, do you, you get like really drained when you're in front of an audience or do you, do you gain energy when you're in front of an audience? I, I definitely gain energy. Uh, and it can, it's kind of like, I don't remember ever being taught this. I don't remember being, you know, drilled into me. It's just part of who I am. It's not really the show must go on. It's I'm doing something I love that I also happen to think is important. And so all of my personal crap that might be lingering or how, what kind of mood I'm in. I remember I, I did a, a a magic show at uh, at a secular convention in Oklahoma and about 15 to 20 minutes before I went out on stage, either something I ate or some flu virus got a hold of me and Oof. I was sweating and nauseous and vomiting. 
And I walked out on stage and I told everybody because, you know, I'm there amongst friends this way, you know, this was a, these were my peeps. And so I went out and I was like, Hey, just so you guys know, I apologize in advance if, if I have to leave the stage or if anything goes screwy, because I just got really, really sick. And every single person who came up to me at the end of that said, if you would have never said that none of us would have known that you were (laughs) sick. And it's, it's, I don't know. It's just what you do. I'm sure, I'm sure at some point, maybe this was beaten into me as a kid that when you, when you say you're going to do something, you do it or whatever. Uh, but it's just, yeah, I get up there. I get a bunch of energy. I know that it's going to be, you know, over at some point there's usually for these events, it's you do the event and then there's a whole bunch of like meet and greet, you know, conversation yeah. out, outside of it. And then by the time I've done, you know, four, five, six, seven hours or whatever it is, I'm done. And I go home and I turn on something that I don't really care about. That's good on the background while I maybe answer emails and kind of start to recharge. I want to back up for a second. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a variety of different kind of fields of study that you talk on, that you debate about, that you think about. Um, uh, I think Atheism is one of those that most people at least think they're familiar with. We can come back to that a little bit later. But but I'm much more interested um, with my own background in philosophy. I thought I was going to you know be a philosophy professor and do a PhD. I came close. And then I've had moments where I go, man, what would my life have been like if I had spent seven years getting a PhD in analytic metaphysics, which is what I was all set to do. So, but you mentioned skepticism. Uh, can you define skepticism and maybe more to the point, what is it, what does being a skeptic mean to you? Yeah, this actually came up during yesterday's show too. And it, it's fairly common because the, the magic show that I've been doing with is called magic and skepticism. And so it's about 50% lecture, 50% magic and all the, really cool. all the tricks are picked out to illustrate specific points. And so for me, skepticism is an ideology. It is, I want my internal model of reality to be as accurate as it possibly can. And so once you commit to that, it pushes you to find the best methods, the best epistemologies, the best ways to go about exploring the world to make sure that you're more likely to be right than not. Um, Modern scientific skepticism is very different from the ancient Greek skepticism, which is far closer to cynicism in my view than than anything else. And Mm -hmm. reminding people that this isn't about debunking. It's about um, having an open mind and being open to being convinced when the evidence warrants it, but also being guarded in that you don't become convinced for bad reasons. And so, you know, I, I tend to go back to Hume for most things in, you know, his, the, quote from him that the wise man proportions his belief to the evidence. Um, I've, I've changed it to remove man. Uh, but generally speaking, my confidence level in something should be proportional to the, the quality and quantity of evidence that supports that. And so I can kind of believe some stuff or believe, barely believe some stuff. And that's about the confidence levels. For me, anybody can say they're a skeptic and anybody can say, Oh, well, I'm skeptical about this. But when, when you use language like that, you're saying, I'm not convinced or I doubt it or I'm questioning and all those things are good. It's when somebody tries to talk about skepticism as if it's just cynicism, if it's naysaying, right. you know, the, you skeptics, you won't believe anything. Well, that's obviously and bizarrely <laughs> false because we believe 99% of the same things everybody else does. It's Let's have a conversation about what let's I like to look at it and say, okay, find something we both believe. 
and talk about the reasons we're convinced. And if we can get to the point where we recognize that we've become convinced for the same reasons or, or similar reasons, and that other potential reasons would not be sufficient, now we are fleshing out where our areas of overlap are within skepticism, within how we're going to create an epistemology. If then we go on to the things where we disagree, and one of us is being consistent and the other one has now introduced a new element, some sort of circular reasoning, some sort of, well, this is a different category of things. Special pleading is probably the most common where it's like, well, you know, I believe in all these things, but I don't believe in ghosts. Um, but ghosts are a special type of thing that, you know, don't conform to scientific testing and investigation. And then my, my question then becomes, OK, but is that the fault of science or is that a flaw in our epistemology or is that a flaw in the claim that you're, you're becoming convinced of something that maybe doesn't have good reason? Kind of a long yeah. answer to what is skepticism, but. No, no, I, 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 I'm, I appreciate the long answer. I appreciate the thorough answer. Uh, I, I'm, I'm wary of uh, kind of where we've gone in, in the culture with the digital media, with everybody being pushed for three second answers to everything and three second sound bites. It's really hard to be coherent and, and comprehensive. There's a lot uh, of assumption in, in that. There's so much assumption. I, I see, I watch people talk past each other. People who agree 99.5% of the way who now think that they're in vehement disagreement with the other person and the other person is terrible all because little subtle things about language and taking shortcuts and assuming that people know and understand what you know and understand, or that they have similar experience. Uh, it kills conversations that and hyperbole, which will destroy the world. <laughs> I, I was literally just listening to you give a talk. It must've been a couple of years ago where you said, where you, you said that hyperbole is destroying the world, which I got a, a great laugh out of. Yeah, just that, was, the that was actually wordplay. the title of the talk. I, I don't know how many years ago it was, but I would love to do an updated version of that because honestly, uh, I think I would call it hyperbole has gotten worse. <laughs> it's it's gotten uh, it's gotten much worse. So let me okay. So wow, there were so many different places to go with that. Uh, you have me very excited. So let me let me focus on one. Is access to information making us smarter? Sure, and in a really kind of limited colloquial sense. One of the other things is there are areas where I where it may be doing the opposite as well. Like I could have better access to more information, and yet my ability to discern what information is reliable and what sources are reliable could be in decline. And that's because, you know, we, you, you get the sort of choice anxiety when you show up and there's 23 bottles of ketchup and there are different prices right. and different things. And you're like, oh, which one? But if there were just three, it'd be a really easy choice. If you have just a couple of news sources, it's really easy for people to talk about, oh, I watched this news source and this news source, and it's this one's not particularly reliable. But when there's 23,000 news sources... Like the other day, I read a, a really good article that I shared. And as, as soon as I shared it, somebody was like, ooh, you shared a, uh, an article from that source? That's some kind of alt-right Nazi-esque whatever. And while that may have been true of the website that published it, this was an article written about a book. And so the actual source material is the book and the, the, the article's author. And when people immediately rejected the source without even looking at the content... I mean, that started a back and forth. And I, I know why people do that. But you can, in fact, be smarter in some ways and less smart in other ways just because we have more information. Yeah, appeal to authority kind of goes 
both ways, right? You can't only, you can't just believe whatever's coming out of a source that you happen to generally agree with and also disagree with everything coming out of a source. You, you have to, you, you have to, it's not an all or nothing situation. Yeah, it's like, I think that our, our general knowledge level of things that we are aware of and things that we have a semi, a fairly good understanding of is always on on is always increasing. And with the internet giving people access to look up all this information, Google knows everything, Wikipedia is there. And while it's not the best source, at least maybe, you know, there's links to follow to find us out. None of us have the time to become an expert in every field. So we're going to wind up trusting other people who we are confident have had time to become an expert. And that puts us in this curious position of depending on authorities even more and exercising what may be, some people might call it faith, some people might call it uh, unwarranted trust or confidence. Um, just be, once upon a time, if I only knew 20 things, I might know them pretty well. But if now I know 700 things, I might only barely know them. And if I don't have the time to spend on each one of them, there are things that are going to get in my brain where not only the belief is false, but the process or the, 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 the heuristic that led me to that belief is problematic and is now making me, my thinking flawed in other areas. You're dancing around language a lot. Um, and I'm really curious. Uh, did, did you, first of all, did you study philosophy formally? I've never studied anything formally. You've never studied anything formally. Um, I used to I'm say I was an, uh, an autodidactic polymath, but that sounds incredibly pretentious when really it, <laughs> I'm just, uh, I study the things that interest me right up until I'm no longer interested. And it's just the way it goes. You, I'm sh I would imagine by now you're, you know, because you've studied informally the things that you want to study, the things that you're interested in. Um, you know, Wittgenstein was, we were chatting about this a little bit before we actually kind of started the episode, you know, Ludwig Wittgenstein at the you know, early 20th century was a Austrian semanticist, an Austrian philosopher of, of language and meaning. And he was a philosopher who disagreed with basically doing philosophy. He thought philosophy was a waste of time uh, and that we needed to do philosophy only insofar as it cured us of the disease, the need to do more philosophy. He thought that we were bewitched by language. And, and you know, so we argued for philosophical therapy. Let's just do as much as we need to stop doing it because it's the language that's being misused that's causing the problems, that there aren't actually problems. Do, do you think language is becoming a barrier to solving these philosophical problems and skeptical problems? I actually don't think language is, is the barrier to solving the problems. I, I think Sometimes when we, when we talk about philosophical problems and how we might solve them, um, I think that one of the mistakes is that there's an assumption that there's a solution that, hmm. you know, why is there something rather than nothing or what is consciousness or, you know, is there, we, we're, we're trying to find a deeper meaning or, or the why behind it. Um, as a matter of fact, on Thursday, I'm, I'm going to be debating uh, Jay Dyer, and he's a huge proponent of the transcendental argument for the existence of God. And I find that an absolutely mind-numbing subject to the point that if I would have known that was where he was going to go, I would not have agreed to do this debate on Thursday. Can, can you can you flesh that out? Mo most of my listeners are young professionals, college and grad students, and kind of educators and that work with them. Can you can you back up and just kind of flesh out what did that, what does that mean? The transcendental argument for the existence of God. Is that what you said? Yeah. Uh, 
I'll do two things. First of all, when you hear the X argument for the existence of God, there's not one argument. It tends to be a category. So when you hear the ontological argument for the existence of God, that's actually a category of arguments that deal with ontology. Something about God's nature makes him necessary. Transcendental arguments for the existence of God come in a couple of different forms. And there were some, some proponents. You can look up guys like Greg Bonson and stuff. But essentially, it is either they'll go with logic or sometimes morality, but I'll just stick with logic for now. We have what have been called the by Bertrand Russell, the laws of thought or the laws of logic, where you have identity, non-contradiction, and excluded middle. Uh, you can demonstrate these things to be true. It is a presupposition or at least an inference of ours that they are universally true, that they would be true in the absence of anything. So if you delete the universe and there's no minds, whatever is, something is what it is, isn't what it isn't, and everything either is or isn't what that is. Uh, it's a simple single Venn circle, single circle Venn diagram where you have a, and everything outside of it's not a, that describes all three of those. The presuppositionalist think that there must be some reason, some grounding, something that affirms and sustains these logical laws. They're looking at laws in the, in the prescriptive sense of there's, there's a lawgiver. And my view on it is that these may just be descriptive laws, that, that it could not have been any other way, um, that we, we don't have a grounding for it, that we don't need to find a grounding for it, and that the attempts to do so are errors of some sort. The presuppositionalists say the atheist worldview or the worldview where there is no God can't provide a foundation for logic. But the Christian worldview or the theistic worldview that they're advocating, because they can do it with almost any of them, does does provide a grounding for logic that if there is a god that god is this foundational perfection lawgiver that can serve as the guarantor that logic is always going to be reliable and their biggest fear is that a lack of absolute certainty is somehow equivalent to chaos i don't think we can be absolutely certain about anything i think we can be maximally certain and everything is derived from the logical laws that I talked about. Uh, I don't know how you would demonstrate absolute certainty, but the fact that I'm not absolutely certain about something doesn't mean that I can't be overwhelmingly and, and with epistemic warrant justified in, in believing that it's true. I mean, if I let go of a pen, I'm incredibly confident that it's going to fall down to the table. And when it doesn't, I'm going to be fairly confident that somebody's doing a magic trick and not <laughs> that the supernatural has intervened to suspend the laws of nature. Right. Like you don't, you don't check before you sit down every time that the chair is solid. You're pretty confident at this point in your life that you're not going to fall straight through it. Yeah. Because I, so instead of saying, I, I, I tend to say I don't have faith in, in the normal sense. What I have are um, realistic exploitations based on evidence. And so on the chair, that's the, that's the example that comes up all the time. Well, you have faith that the chair will hold you. No, what I actually have is a confidence Based on evidence, I also can investigate and examine this chair. And if I, when I sit down in the chair, I'm not absolutely chair, sure that that chair is going to hold me. And if the chair doesn't hold me, then that goes in as a data point uh, so that now I'm much better at figuring out which chairs will and won't hold me. And it's, it was more funny when I was 90 pounds heavier than I am now, uh, because then you get the, oh, well, here's a fat guy who's going to sit down on a chair and have some faith. But now I weigh a lot less, so it's not as funny. 
took me by surprise how deep we got into the actual kind of philosophical arguments and well, not the arguments, but like, you know, the, the discussion so quickly, I think people would be really interested. And I know I'm interested to know how you actually ended up in this, you know, diverse career, but essentially as a public intellectual, a thought leader. We need a better term for this because those yes, are things you can't say about yourself when when people, like I don't, I know that technically I get hired as a quote thought leader, but when someone says, what do you do? I can't go, I'm a thought leader. It's ridiculous, <laughs> right? Um, I'm a one so we, man think tank. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, wasn't it George Carlin? I think I am, therefore I am, I think. Maybe you can back us up and talk me through did you start as a full-time magician? How did you end up, you know, getting paid at all, let alone now making a career out of, out of being a, a, a public intellectual, essentially? Sure. Yeah. Actually, somebody called the show yesterday and, and was referring to me as a public intellectual. And because I don't ever think of myself in that term, in, in that sense, I thought they were saying that they were a public intellectual. And I, and I literally said, I had no idea you were a public intellectual. Uh, and then <laughs> it dawned on me what was happening. Um, the short life story of from there to here in, uh, in a minute or less, uh, I got my first magic set when I was about three, it was in a card playing family. I've always had a deck of cards in my hand. I grew up watching Doug Henning. I was lucky enough to meet, um, David Copperfield when I was like 10 or 11, when he did a show wow. in St. Louis, uh, it was like at just a couple of seconds, I showed him a card trick I came up with and he was, you know, very, uh, polite and kind about it. Um, then I went through high school, got out of high school. I had no options. I had a girlfriend. I wanted to get married. I had been, my, my high school graduating class had over 900 students uh, that graduated my senior year. And I was, um, I was a bright kid, but I was also bored. And so I barely graduated mostly because I would sleep or skip classes or whatever. And that left me without a lot of options. So I joined the Navy and I did just at eight and a half years in the Navy. Um, wow. I, when I got out, I, w- I had been stationed in the Norfolk area. One of my friends from the Navy lived here in Austin, Texas and uh, worked for Dell. So I moved to Austin. We were roommates for several years. I worked at a, a small computer company and then I worked for Dell for four and a half years. And I went from diagnostics test technician with no experience or anything to lead engineer for workstation motherboard testing uh, in in the span of two years. And I did that for a couple of years uh, and got fired. And not because I'd done anything wrong. As a matter of fact, I got fired for doing my job too well. Uh, (laughs) I, I was in competition with guys with a degree and tons of experience. And so I set out to find a better way uh, to be more efficient about creating and doing the testing. And as it happens on my second project, uh, I succeeded. And by the time the third project rolled around, I had 100% test coverage at one of the very early motherboard builds. And so I was now six months or more ahead of what our schedule was. And this happened to coincide with Dell doing some layoffs. And so my boss called me in and said, um, hey, you know, we're really sorry. We love your work. Uh, you're doing great, but we have to cut headcount and we have no work for you for the six, next six months because you've already gotten it done. And I was crushed. I left that place with a box of stuff from my desk and drove home because I'd been taught, you know, you have a good work ethic, you get stuff done. Uh, you show some loyalty to the company and that's how you build a career. And it turns out that's bull. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause the company couldn't give a rat's ass about me. 
And they gave me a big enough severance package that I didn't have to work for 18 months. And so I spent that time kind of in serious prayer and study because at that point I thought God was punishing me. Uh, I had thought that God wanted me to be a preacher. My family did, my church did. And I had run away from that in part because of the fear of public speaking that I mentioned earlier. Um, I realize if you're going to edit this, saying I mentioned it earlier now forces you to put that in there. It won't make sense, <laughs> uh, which is why I added that for you. Uh, but the the thing was, I found my way out uh, of religion while trying to become the best Christian I, I could be. I, you know, I thought God wanted me to do this, so I got serious and studied. And my roommate at the time was an atheist. Um, and I set out to find a way to convince him. And, and, and it all backfired without ever having a conversation with him. I, I, I studied... Um, I studied philosophy when I realized, okay, well, I, I need to figure out how to guide my search, you know, what kind of God might exist or what religion might be true. And maybe I just don't know enough about these subjects to even begin to engage with somebody else. After finding my way out, I was writing for some online websites. Some people told me about the TV show, uh, by just a coincidence, Jeff D who was one of the hosts of the show happened to live in the same apartment complex that I did. And he put a flyer up by the mailbox and I happened to go out on Sunday, see the flyer. It was like 30 minutes before the show started. I walked back to my apartment, watched the show, called into the show. Then they invited me to come down to the show. Then I worked behind the scenes for a month or two. And then I started hosting the show. And then that turned into using all of my vacation time and free time, um, doing, lectures and debates. And, and then it turned into patron, uh, Patreon about four years ago. So it's a wild, uh, wild track. I mean, when you, do you look back on it and say, and feel lucky? Like what, what do you think the role of luck is in your success? Yeah. I, I try not to, to, to view luck as, as an entity or a thing and, and, and just more like an abstract concept. Um, in in the colloquial sense, I'm absolutely lucky. And when I started, so I was doing magic shows, um, started off mostly for family. As a matter of fact, the, the story I have for you in a bit uh, ties into this. But when I got to 18, I had, you know, done magic shows at churches and, you know, family events and school events and stuff like that. But I didn't want to be a kid's magician. And that was pretty much the only option. And I, like I said, I had a girlfriend. I wanted to get married. I knew that wasn't a particularly good career floundering around working fast food and doing magic. And that's how I ended up going in the Navy. Then a couple of years ago, I was giving a talk at a skeptic event and realized that I'd never stopped doing magic. I'm an obsessive learner and magic is my one true first love. And so despite the fact that I hadn't been actively performing, uh, I have a massive collection and I study a lot and, you know, I, I have, have some skill and I'm able to do stuff. And a couple of years ago, I realized I knew a trick that would illustrate a point I wanted to make in a talk very clearly. And so I added that. And then that turned into, well, can you do more? And then it was, now I'm going to give a close-up or parlor kind of lecture on skepticism and magic. And that turned into doing magic at American Atheist and at Aposticon. And then that turned into going on tour with a 10-city event in Canada and 10 cities in the U.S. of magic and skepticism which also included me getting to work with and perform with the amazing Randy and Sean Farquhar and Murray Hatfield. And I'm friends with Kurt Anderson and Jamie and Swiss and all these other people. As a matter of fact, at Dragon Con, Kurt and I are going to be doing a magic show that Jamie's going to be emceeing. That's so awesome. <laughs> when you talk about luck, 
I genuinely, for a while last year, felt like I had cheated because I know so many guys. I, I'm part of the local clubs. I interact and I watch these guys who they're going to go down and busk on 6th Street. They're just going to put in countless thousands of hours and work and work and work and work and work and never really get anywhere. And I felt like I cheated, like I came in through the skeptic back door and then I got to perform as you, you know, and everything else. Now, I will say I am, in fact, good at it because a lot I don't care if I fool somebody. Fooling somebody is not what magic is for any anymore. It's entertaining. And I can I can work an audience and have fun and occasionally be funny. And, you know, magic is basically I know something you don't know and I know how to keep you from finding out. And uh, I, I, I it's if you said you're only going to get to be able to do debates or magic one or the other, that's it for the rest of your life. I think I would learn what, what why some people might become suicidal because I could not pick between those two. It would kill me to try to make that choice. You you mentioned that magic was your first like and and, and like your true love. What is it that you love about magic? It may be different from other people because for me it's like I mentioned I'm an obsessive learner. I love games, I love puzzles. Uh, I love having to figure stuff out, but one of my favorite things is making people think and watching people think. And so once upon a time, that probably took the form of not really a practical joke, but maybe I would play devil's advocate or, you know, start conversations specifically to watch how somebody else worked their way through a problem. Um, I can't put my finger on what it is about magic. I know it's a part of that. I know for me watching magic, it's, can I figure that out? My, my wife and I, my ex-wife and I used to have a game. We'd sit around and watch Penn and Teller's Fool Us. And that we played two games. One is which of Matt's friends is going to be on the show today and are they going to fool them? <laughs> uh, because Brushwa was on and Suzanne was on and, you know. Michael uh, was on. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the other one was, okay, if they fool Penn and Teller, are they actually going to fool Matt? Now, it's not that I'm better at any of this. I mean, Teller's a walking encyclopedia who I, I absolutely adore. And there was a time when I thought I came up with a new card trick and he was the first one that I went to. And I was like, hey, is this me? And he's like, I don't know. It's not that it's that watching it on TV gives me a slight edge because I can also I don't rewind. That's one of my rules, but I can pause and take him an extra minute to reflect on this. And for anybody who knows quite a bit about magic, uh, the for, for the lay audiences, the better a trick gets for magicians, sometimes the worse it gets because you can start closing in on this too perfect mm -hmm. principle that, well, now there's only one solution, you know. Uh, obviously, hey, there's something peculiar about you. Uh, you might share a, a genetic bond with a portion of this, you know, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, to me, it's it's kind of like a puzzle. I want to know how it's done. And on the rare occasions where I'm completely fooled, which still happens uh, and I love it, but it also irritates me because now I need to know how it's done. And it's uh, I love the fact that part of my life is about. I know something you don't know, and I am eager and desperate to share it with you. And I'm also eager and desperate to find out the things that you know that I don't. And the other aspect of my life is I know something you don't know, and I'm going to mess with you with it. <laughs> I think that when magicians watch magic, the one, the, it's not just that we know a bunch of secrets already. I don't think that's the main reason that we watch it differently. I think the reason we watch it differently is because we learn to notice the difference between what's impossible and what's actually impossible. 
And so there are like, there's certain, like someone who's not a magician will go, oh, maybe it was done like this. And we'll go, no, that's not even actually possible. Like, so I'm not even considering that as a solution. Um, I remember I did, I did when I was in the Navy, I would do card tricks and um, somebody would uh, come up to me at, when I was done and that be like scared, you know, oh, you've got demonic energy running through you. Well, at the time I was a fundamentalist Christian and not only did it irritate me that I'd spent countless hours practicing something only to have, you know, the supernatural credited, but also I didn't want people thinking that I was using demonic energy. And so it would frustrate me and I would show the person exactly how I did the trick. And on several occasions, they would look at me and say, that's not what you did the first time. And I'm like, if I can fool you this way, why on earth would I go summon demons to do it? And they're like, I don't know, but you did. It is amazing when people jump from a show, the kind of show we're talking about, the modern comedy magic show, kind of, you know, humorous magic show. That's that's we're not talking about the Darren Browns of the world who occasionally look like what they're doing is so real. It's when we're talking about the kind of show that you're talking about where people will jump to like demons or supernatural and you go. You're kidding, right? Like I just—it's just, it's just this a is amazing trick. source of of argument and discussion in the magic community. It's about the ethics of, of things, specifically those related to the psychic entertainers. Um, oh yeah, I, I know Max Maven and and Jamie and some other people have gone back and forth on this. You know, oh, as a matter of fact, Jamie and Swiss did a, did a show touring where I saw it at a CFI here in Austin. But he specifically came out and gave like a mountain of disclaimers or, or felt like a mountain of disclaimers before his mentalism show to prove to people that, yes, you could come right out and disclaim this and still put on an entertaining show. And Darren, not so much now, but in the old days, would very much toe the line because he's so good at what he does that when he would, you know, when his patter would say, you know, hey, I'm using psychological principles and neurolinguistic yeah. programming. Well, now NLP is BS. For the, right. for the most part. Right. But and Darren's, that's just for the listeners, that's neuro-linguistic programming and it's completely BS. And it's really important that people know that. It, it, it's, it's the only sense in which it's not BS is that the way you say things can impact how people hear them and take them, but you can't control people's minds by picking your words precisely. <laughs> but Darren is so good at what he does that people were starting to say, look, NLP is real. Darren Brown uses it and they're pointing to it. And now you're in this, this position where, Okay, what is the ethical dilemma? What is my responsibility as a performer to make sure that I'm not actively misleading people? Uh, what's what right. distinguishes me from the the telephone psychics or the scam psychics who are going to have you bring in your your grandmother's wedding ring and five thousand dollars to get rid of the demons that are cursing your house? What is that distinction? And for somebody like Max, and I, I hate to reference other people and put words in their mouth, but this is conversations I've I've read and heard. His view seems to be that. It's a theater. You paid tickets for a show yeah. and therefore I don't need a disclaimer. And while I understand that mindset and I yeah. kind of mostly agree with it, um, that's true of Darren. And, and you know, you watch uh, the clairvoyance or any of the, the you know, team Kodaks that are, you're going to see on AGT or something. The Avicens and yeah. Yeah. They're incredibly convincing to the lay audience and it doesn't matter that it happened in a theater. Now all of a sudden people are believing supernatural things. And I think there is an ethical component to what our responsibility as performers is. I don't necessarily think I need to come out and say, okay, this is all hooey and I'm definitely just using a trick to mess with you. But uh, I do some of that in, in my show specifically 
because I'm teaching skepticism. And there's a really right. important point. There's a bunch of important points, but let's say I do a trick and you know how it's done. Well, that's not true. You know a way that it can be done. You know the way somebody else did it. But what if I'm actually using supernatural abilities to read your mind, but making it look like I did a center tear? Right. Um, now, all of a sudden, I'm actually doing something supernatural, but because I don't want people to know it's supernatural, I've added this extra layer so that you think you knew how it was done, which means you've been fooled twice. And so it, it's about making sure the conclusions we reach are at most tentative and proportional to the evidence. And so I start off the show and I point out, I'm not going to be explaining to any of you this evening how I do this. And there's three reasons for that. The first is that there are people here who don't want to know, and I don't want to ruin the show for them. Um, the second one is there are other performers who do some of the same things I do, and I don't want to ruin their shows for them. And the third reason is if I tell you how it's done, then we run the risk of you thinking you know how it's done. And mm -hmm. that's not necessarily the case. Do you have a story of a chance encounter that was meaningful to you in some way that had kind of some impact on you, them, or both? Yeah. And actually it, it's kind of a, what you'll, you'll be the one who decides whether or not this is cheating. Uh, when you mentioned chance encounter, uh, nowadays there are fewer for me chance encounters because I, when I, you know, tend to meet people, it's at events and other things like that. The story happened, or I was somewhere between 10 and 13. I don't remember. I was on an airplane with my parents and as I sat down, I was in the aisle seat, a bunch of WWE or WWF at the time wrestlers boarded the plane and I was a wrestling fan and I'm sitting here watching and I was like, holy crap. And I watch Macho Man and Elizabeth go back and they're sitting like two rows behind me on the right. And directly across the aisle from me is a wrestler who at the time was known as Outback Jack. And I was sitting there practicing my card magic. It was, it was strange because, you know, I'm seeing celebrities, uh, just happenstance. They happen to be on that plane, but you're, I was taught, you know, Hey, you don't necessarily talk to adults and you certainly don't want to bother other people. And so I'm just sitting there and I'm doing card tricks and rubber band tricks and other stuff that I was practicing close up and I watch and Outback Jack just keeps looking over and watching. And so I, I adjust my hand position or whatever without looking at him to make sure that he can see the trick better and not the method better. Um, watch him, watch my angles. And at one point he just leans over and he goes, do that again. And I was like, well, you know, I'm not supposed to do that again, but I'll, I'll try to do that. So, so I do something else and I'm sitting here and he's, he's entertained and he's mystified. And up until that point, I had probably only performed for family, friends, church people, whatever. Uh, and this is, it struck me, I can fool and entertain a random adult. And that's something that was critical for somebody, you know, 10 to 13 to figure out that, you know, your family's not just placating you, you do have some skill and you practice here. And there is something about this that, that is entertaining for people. But the chance encounter didn't quite end there because while Jack and I chatted just a little bit, I did some card tricks and he loved it. And uh, he was, you know, getting the couple of the other wrestlers that were nearby and he was pointing so they would watch when the plane lands we go to get off and for most of the plane ride I, I apologize to cactus jack because while it was incredibly impactful meeting you for a good chunk of the plane ride i was just thinking holy crap macho man is sitting like just two seats back 
and it was not long before or not not too long before this encounter that he had had a match with Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And sometimes my brain will switch things. So when the plane landed and the first two rows cleared, I jump back into the row that's directly in front of Macho Man. And I lean over and I put my hand out and he's sitting there, Elizabeth sitting there. And I said, aren't you the Macho Man Ricky Savage instead of Randy Savage? And he goes, no, aren't you glad you didn't shake my hand? And he gets up and he walks off and Elizabeth looks absolutely distraught. Because so this is this is the late 70s, early 80s, where nobody had broken kayfabe and those guys were expected to be in character out in public all the time. And so when he did that, my brain was like, oh, my gosh, you you call him Ricky Savage instead of Randy Savage. And I'm sitting there trying to correct it. And Elizabeth just reached out and grabbed my hand and she's like, don't worry, it's you know, he yes, that's him. And, and you didn't do anything wrong. And then she got up and left the plane. And. The, the, this has stuck with me. I'm 50 now. And this has stuck with me my entire life, both aspects of that one plane ride. Because from that moment on, I was almost never starstruck. I was, I never had an infatuation with celebrities. There were people, as a matter of fact, the final trick in my show is all, all about celebrities and, you know, don't get your medical information from celebrities, including celebrity doctors type of thing. But it talks about a deck of cards that I had had signed and and other stuff like that. And for a while, I was really down on the notion of celebrity. And then I realized I got to a point where it's okay to appreciate people for the things that they've done that contributed to your life. It's just don't put them up as if they are a better quality or standard of human being. Appreciate people for the good things and not the bad. And so on that one flight, I learned that I can fully entertain adults, that celebrities aren't just people who ride in first class because all these guys were back in coach with me. That everybody makes mistakes, that a slip of of the tongue when you're you're meeting someone, uh, even if they're nasty in response, doesn't mean that you've necessarily done anything wrong and that there are facades people put up because I know Savage wasn't like that all the time. This was essentially a, a part of his job. Uh, and Elizabeth, you know, giving all that comfort, there were there were like. It feels like 18 lessons that were learned in one little flight from two or three WWF wrestlers and a couple of card tricks to the point where this has lasted my entire life. It's one of the reasons when I do get starstruck now, uh, which is very, very rare, I immediately reflect back to that moment and then say, what is about this situation that is different? Am I am I actually holding someone up as better as a human being? Or am I just genuinely appreciative for what this person has done for my life? And so I live half a mile from Steve Jackson Games. And for people who don't know, Steve Jackson Games produced Munchkin and Car Wars and Ogre and all these things. That was my introduction to gaming beyond Monopoly and Sorry and the in standard box games. It, it mm-hmm. taught me what games could be. And so just a couple of years ago, I have a friend who works there. Sometimes I go up and play test, but I got a chance to meet Steve. And when I got a chance to meet him, we're standing out in the parking lot. I'm in my late 40s. We're half a mile from my house. I've, I'm probably better known uh, in, in some circles at this point than Steve is because he keeps a really low profile and just wants to do the games. And yet I'm sitting here going, oh, my gosh, you completely changed my life with regard to gaming. So now I know that when I actually get starstruck... It's for the right reasons and not just because someone is famous because uh, I know, know some famous people and I 
couldn't give a rat's ass whether or not they're famous. They're, we're either going to treat each other like human beings or I don't want anything to do with them. That's an awesome story. I, uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, and there is something about planes that are magical, aren't they? I, I Like 80% or 90% of like the most important chance encounters of my life happened on a plane or at the airport. It's amazing that it, it, it's almost like an equalizer. Everybody's doing the same thing. There's nowhere to go. And so everyone just drops the facades at some point and, um, you know, and just is who they are. And you mentioned, you know, you, you hang out and you do hang out in famous circles. I mean, when you mentioned the tours that you've done, um, you know, over the last few years, you've spent a lot of time on stage with Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and people that, you know, are celebrities to many people that are f- properly famous legends. Um, let's, let's close with this. I have, I have really kind of two final questions that kind of tag off of each other. Um, before we get there, where would you like people to go find you? What would you like them to, to see from you? Look at first, I'll have it all in the show notes. Oh, uh, that's the harder question than what do you do for a living? <laughs> Technically, com exists, but it's currently still being run by um, Pangburn. And so while there's booking and stuff there, I don't get that information. Um, by and large, they can go to the Atheist Debates Patreon project, which is patreon.com slash Atheist Debates. That's me releasing four videos a month, which pays the bills and helps educate people on how to have better conversations about religion and philosophy. It posts my debates, reviews of those debates, and then detailed looks at some specific topics. Um, other than that, they can just, I don't know, Google Matt Delaney. You'll find the Atheist Experience. You'll find, uh, I don't know. I, I'm no good at self-promotion and marketing, which is probably why I'm, I'm never going to make it as a, as a touring professional magician uh, out, outside of maybe the secular community and some conventions. <laughs> uh, no, we'll make sure that we can all go, uh, everybody can all go find your, uh, your, your stuff there. And I'll, I'll link to a handful of maybe um, um, kind of live debates slash discussions that I found particularly um, uh, really interesting. I think, Let's, I, think the, I think my answer to that, uh, uh, which has been frustrating me and, and I'm, constantly beating myself up. Like when I leave the TV show, uh, I tend to replay the whole show in my head as a way of, oh, you should have said this, you should have said this. And I, I'm my own worst critic. And so when people say, oh, well, where should people go to follow you and find the stuff you do? A long time ago, I got it in my head and I think it's true, but I think it's also partially not true and a potential mistake that I don't matter. That what I say may matter. It's the content, the subjects matter. And so when people are like, oh, how can we follow you or how can we find your stuff? There's a there's a knee jerk reaction to that. If I don't want you to follow me, uh, it's what I say or the content that I present that is important. So, you know, the fact that I have 100,000, 125,000, whatever it is, followers on YouTube or Twitter or Facebook um, has never been a thing for me. As a matter of fact, it almost bugs me that somebody's like, oh, I love you and you're everything you say and all this stuff. Uh, it's it's weird. And when I go to conventions or an event and somebody's gushing about how, oh, the content, what you guys have done on the show has changed my life. I appreciate, I sincerely appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that what we've done on the shows and in the discussions have helped people. But if they can't get over that, in about like a minute or so and just talk to me like I'm a regular person, I have to move on to somebody else because I can't take that. It's like, it's too much pressure as if I'm now responsible for your life. 
And I know I can't live up to whatever it is that you've made me in your head. So I'd rather just move on and talk to somebody else. Let's close out with this. Uh, Two questions, especially because so many of, like I mentioned earlier, so much of my audience are young professionals, college students, young adults. What, I know you didn't study philosophy formally. So, but one, what is the value in philosophy in 2019? Uh, you know, uh, when science and all these other areas have started to take over the last 100, 200 years, so many of what philosophy, so much of what philosophy used to do, what's left essentially? What is philosophy there for? Why should we be cognizant of philosophy? And maybe more specifically, do you have tips, a few tips for effective discussion, effective conversation. That's, you know, especially when you're talking to someone, like if you're an atheist and you're talking to someone who's devoutly religious or the other way, Republicans, Democrats, do you have like at least something to give us that we can hang our hats on to have better discussions where we don't hate each other at the end of it? Yeah, I hope so. To answer the first part of the question, and I know I'm probably going to make some philosophy advocates really upset. Um, I view the value of studying philosophy along the same lines as as the value of studying history, because it doesn't matter to me as much whether or not philosophy gets us to a discrete answer to a particular problem or dilemma as much as that it teaches us how to think in ways that might get us to the answer, that are more likely to get us to the answer. And I I tend to view it as as more um, corrective than instructive. And and a lot of times in in education, we're spending most of our time instructing when I think we should probably be spending more time correcting and showing people how they reached the wrong conclusion for what seemed to be really good reasons. And so I'm I'm largely a humist. There's a couple of things that I I disagree with Hume on. But I've said before, uh, if you don't really care that much about philosophy in general, but you just want to kind of know the basics of epistemology, all you really need to read is Hume. Uh, Yes, there's other stuff that will refine it and change it or whatever else. But as far as I'm concerned, Hume pretty much nailed it. You should proportion your belief to the evidence. Um, If somebody tells me that they watched someone raised from the dead, I have to ask whether or not it's more likely that they are trying to deceive me or that they have been deceived than that the thing is true. And Hume's big axiom is reject the greater miracle. And the thing that people miss is that he doesn't say accept the lesser miracle. He's saying reject the greater miracle. He hasn't told you what you should believe. He's pointing out what you shouldn't believe. That to me is the core of skepticism, the core of good epistemology is avoiding being wrong. Even if you don't necessarily get to the right answer, even if we can't, maybe truth is something that is ephemeral that we can never really touch. Uh, Maybe we can't be absolutely certain about anything, which I think is the case, but we can at least do our best to avoid being wrong, especially in incredibly impactful ways. And and as far as tips uh, for having the conversations better, first is I screw up as much or more than anybody. Yesterday, I was in a particularly bad mood on the show. Um... The two weeks prior to that, I was in a great mood. And if you watch me over those three shows, you'll see, wow, who is this Matt guy? He's not yelling as much. And then there's this where he's not hanging up as much. And then there's there's yesterday where I was almost on a hair trigger um, of I'm just not in the mood to to take, you know, dissembling and and, uh, obfuscating and, and everything else. I wanted to just have a conversation and the people who called in aren't capable of doing it. So the tips that I have, number one, 
Why are you doing this? Doesn't matter what the topic is, Republican, Democrat, gun control, abortion, atheism, whatever. Are you having this discussion because you want to change their mind? Are you doing it because you want to show how much more you know than what they know? For me, the motivation is I want to learn things and I want other people to learn things. I genuinely care about the discussion. Most of the time, there are discussions that come up that I don't think I could, I probably couldn't care less about some of them. But if, if my goal is to actually understand why someone believes something that I don't so that I can then explain why I don't share that belief or perhaps explain why I don't think they should hold that belief, that to me is a good motivation because now it puts you in the position where you're more likely to be a charitable listener, giving them more of the benefit of the doubt. I, I'm as uh, pedantic and literal as you're probably going to find, and yet I strive to make sure that I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt in conversations that, without going, oh, you said this when what you really meant was this. If I know what you mean, we're okay. The danger then is beginning to assume that you both know what the other one means. And so every now and then, pause, define your terms. And I don't care if you guys fundamentally disagree in every other conversation about what this term means. If you can agree on how you're going to use it in that conversation, that's good enough. But if you never get to that point of agreement, you're more than likely going to be talking past each other. So do it for the right reasons. Try to listen as charitably as possible. Um, also, you don't owe anybody ever an explanation or an argument uh, on anything. And you certainly don't owe somebody one about who you are. So what I get, what I hear from a lot of times is uh, kids that are being disowned by their parents because they no longer have the same religious beliefs or because they're gay and their parents, uh, you know, don't like it. We hear from them all the time and they're like, how do I explain this? How do I explain this? And my answer is you don't need to. You don't owe somebody an explanation for who you are or what you think. You should only engage in the conversations that you're comfortable with. It's the reason I don't make outgoing calls on the show. I let people call in so that I'm talking to the people who want to. If I'm out at dinner and there's somebody praying, it doesn't harm me or bother me. It doesn't annoy me that they have this belief that I think is unwarranted. Yeah, but I'm not going to go over to their table and go, you know, excuse me, have you stopped believing in Jesus and stopped praying yet? Because I can fix that for you. Because that's... That's not who I am. It's not what I think. It's it's arrogant. It's no way to an actual conversation. So find the people that want to have the conversation. Do your best to steel man their positions, to to present the strongest version of theirs that you can. And I realize in some conversations can be incredibly hard when, you, when you're talking like flat earthers um, who are just flying in the face of everything we know as science to the point where yeah. it's difficult to even take them seriously. And yet they are serious, some of them. And if you want, if you want to have that conversation, then you have to adopt that, that burden of being the person who is genuinely interested in shepherding the conversation. When you find someone you disagree with, who is also genuinely interested in share, shepherding that conversation, you're going to find that you're going to end up in a six hour conversation with heated disagreements. And you guys are going to walk away friends and eager to do it again when you find that. And everything that doesn't come close to that, you don't just disregard it. If somebody says something in those conversations and you don't have an answer, good, because I don't know is almost always the right answer. And if you're in that conversation, you can always, unless you're on a debate on stage or on a TV show, but in the interpersonal conversations, you can say, that's an interesting point. Can we stick a pen in this conversation? Let me think about that. Let me go research it and get back to you. And then when they say yes, 
think about it, research it, and get back to them because you should do what you say you're going to do. Matt, I can't thank you enough for your time. I think that was an excellent way to end. And uh, I I could do this all day, but I think we're going to let you and everybody else listening get uh, get on with their lives. So uh, I hope we get to uh, to meet and hang out in person some point. I, I do too. I really look forward to it. I, I was at the IBM uh, convention in Scottsdale uh, last month, and uh, I'm sure we'll run into each other at some point. The more we do this, the more close friends we're going to have, the more likely we're going to get invited to the same event at some point. Absolutely. Well, listen, thanks again and uh, have a nice, uh, have a nice, I don't know, day, night, whatever you're up to. Who knows? Thanks, Brian. (laughs) Before you crack open that philosophy 101 textbook from your freshman year of college, because I'm, I'm sure you still have it. Here are a few takeaways from this episode. First, digital communication has made misunderstandings more prevalent and more devastating. Avoid unnecessary confusion by clearly defining your terms, even if you think what you're talking about is universal, because it never is. Second, it's getting harder and harder to determine what's true in the age of information. When in doubt, return to David Hume. A wise person proportions one's beliefs to the evidence. And finally, it's fine to appreciate celebrities and entertainers for the impact they've had on you and the world, but don't put them on a pedestal. They're not a special type of person, and their fame doesn't make them better than you. We are all flawed and just as worthy of love as anyone else. Head to mattdillahunty.com for more information on Matt's work and upcoming live appearances. If you found this or any episode valuable, send it to a friend, colleague, or family member. Remember to subscribe free always at onenewperson.com for more in-depth conversations with legends of industries. Tag us on social media using hashtag onenewperson, all spelled out, so we can find you and thank you. And on that note, sincerely, thank you so much for your interest and support as I close out season two. I will still upload short Thursday thoughts episodes from time to time during the break before season three, which is due to launch in March 2020. Until then, I'm Brian Miller. This is One New Person, and we'll see you next time.